0: Welcome to the Holistic Health Podcast, beautiful humans. If a professional, polished, well-edited podcast is what you're after, then move right on. If, however, you love unfiltered banter, unedited bloopers, authentic
1: heart sharing and a very generous dash of holistic health education, then you're in the
0: right place. Let's dive in, shall we?
1: Oh, hello, friends, Uh, we are so happy to be back in your ear holes and talking about a little bit of a heavier subject today and something that is a little bit more niche, but something that's very dear to my heart, both from the disease point of view and, of course, the toxic mold point of view, and that is exploring the potential connection between toxic mold exposure and seizures. I have seen so many case reports of seizures, particularly in children, but also in adults developing after exposure to a water damaged building or toxic mold. And although there is yet to be anything published in the literature directly connecting the two, when you start to pull the threads together, you can see exactly how on a physiological basis, the influence of a water damaged building can have on brain health including the development and the triggering of seizures. So, this is very much uh, my opinion and my exploration of what I know is triggered with toxic mold and water damage buildings and its relationship to the brain. But I'm sharing it with you in the hopes that for anyone who is dealing with seizures or epilepsy, that there may be some answers for you that haven't yet been uncovered. Now, we both fully acknowledge there are other causes of epilepsy. And seizures. So this is just putting another factor on the table for consideration, especially for people who are struggling to um, get them under control, maybe they're not so responsive to medication, or it is quite an unusual anomaly that this has developed and certainly if there's any sort of red flags as far as mold exposure goes, this might well be the episode for you. Uh, but before we dive into the dots that I've connected, now do you want to take us through what epilepsy actually is?
0: Yes, I do. So according to the Epilepsy Foundation, it's, it's basically defined as... I guess being diagnosed by a medical specialist after someone experiences at least two unprovoked seizures, um, and epilepsy and seizures can actually vary quite a lot between person to person, and not all people who have seizures are diagnosed with epilepsy. So there, sometimes um, people use those terms interchangeably, but they're they're not. So to take that a little bit of a step further, um, and focus on the seizure part of that, which is mostly what we'll be speaking to is that a seizure is essentially a temporary disruption of the electrical activity in the brain. And within the seizure, like within, I guess, the umbrella term of seizures, there's actually a lot of different types of seizures that may actually present. Um, and, you know, they, they might include changes to sensation or behaviour or movement or awareness, but... Um, But to give you a a bit of a basic understanding, they're generally categorized into three different types. So one being generalized seizures, which involve the whole brain. um, And within that type, they're further defined. So things like absence seizures, um, tonic-clonic seizures, myoclonic seizures, tonic seizures, and atonic seizures. And you don't need to remember all that. It's more just giving you an example of How it is, you know. There's many types within types. The second um, category of of seizures are focal seizures, which involve one part of the brain, um, and they can be with or without awareness. And then the third type is psychogenic non-epileptic non-epileptic seizures. And again, it's it's not important that you know or remember all of those. It's more just to expand the awareness of seizures outside of just what we would typically associate um, an epileptic seizure with or something that we've just seen on TV play out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. But I'd love to, would really love to pick your brain about this and how it relates to mould in particular given your experience um and uh, interesting theories that you've got mm-hmm. as well so as far as like the connection between mould and seizures go? Like where do you start to, where like how do we actually join the dots there? What are the dots to join? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a few actually, um kind of three key areas we're going to talk about in this episode. So I'm going to touch on mycotoxins that are known to be neurotoxic and cause neuroinflammation and damage to the brain. I'm also going to look at some of the key biomarkers that we know are impacted in a SERS patient, someone who's developed SERS as a result of toxic mold exposure, and also just some of the hormonal aspects that are wobbled when someone has an exposure to a water damaged building. So I might just dive in and say, first of all, Any kind of toxin, not just mold toxins, can cause inflammation. And some toxins lend themselves more to neuroinflammation or are considered to be neurotoxic. And there are certainly mycotoxins that fall under the category
0: or umbrella of. Neurotoxicity. And we when actually- you can, I ask you there just because I know some people might not follow. Mm. Um, we, when you say neuro, like what does that refer to um, in terms of like a neurotoxin? What does that mean? Is it, yeah.
1: Mm, a neurotoxin. So neuro is pertaining to neurons, which are a type of cell in our nervous system. So this includes our central nervous system, which is our brain and spinal cord, but also our peripheral nervous system as well. So all of those um sensory um nerves that sort of carry sensory information back to the brain and also the the nerves that carry i guess signals from the brain to the limbs to move your fingers or move your legs for example and what we know with neurotoxic compounds is there is a very strong connection including those for mycotoxins with other neurodegenerative diseases like schizophrenia well multiple sclerosis is more neurodegenerative but schizophrenia And even bipolar. But in the case of seizures specifically, um, we know that there are a class of mycotoxins that are tremorgenic. Now, the tremorgenic mycotoxins can cause symptoms anywhere from mental confusion to tremors, as the name suggests, all the way through to seizures and death. And in this case, these class of mycotoxins cause significant central nervous system activity, meaning that that you find in the brain. And, you know, there's been association of high prevalence of neurological symptoms in mold exposure and water damaged buildings. And in particular, there is a neurotoxin called ocratoxin A. Now, a lot of the research that's been done on this, keeps referring to it as a food-associated fungal neurotoxin, and they talk about um, its impact being directly toxic to neurons and astrocytes, which is another type of brain cell. It can cause death of these brain cells um, by the way that it influences a neurotransmitter called glutamate. Now, the issue that I have with a lot of the research on mycotoxins is Um, You get better evidence in veterinary medicine, actually, and this is probably across the board, not just with mould, particularly in agricultural area, but... Ochratoxin A is not just found in food. It's actually produced by a number of species of aspergillus, aspergillus sorry, and penicillium, and these ones are found inside a water-damaged building, and so you are onboarding these toxins inside a water-damaged building, whether it's a home or an office, and it has nothing to do with mycotoxin contamination of food. Um, And certainly, you know, that connection alone is an interesting one to explore. Um, I couldn't find any evidence of, you know, epileptic patients being subjected to mycotoxin, urinary mycotoxin tests, um, but definitely a thread that I think um, someone who was a progressive neurologist um, could do well to explore. But in addition to that, We have well-established blood biomarkers that get thrown out, triggered or suppressed in a SERS patient. So, I'm going to cover off just. And a- SIRS stands for. Oh, thank you for pulling me yeah. up. SIRS, if this is the first time you're listening to me talk about toxic mold, welcome. It's something that I talk a fair bit about. And that's because of my own personal journey. And I developed the condition called SIRS. So, SIRS is, is an acronym spelled C I R S, and it stands for Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Now, SIRS can be triggered by. Other things outside of mold, so things like breast implants, you know, um, low-grade infections like with root canals, um, mesh implants from you know hernia repairs, and also Lyme disease and Lyme-like illnesses are another subclass of SIRS. But um, and I suppose that's relevant for this conversation as well. But because of my experience in toxic mold, I'm really focusing on that for the time being. But with SERS, this condition, we see a lot of different blood markers shift in an abnormal way. And some of those are, we see a huge elevation in C4A. I'm going to go through and tell you what each of these things are in a minute, but we see C4A go up. We see VEGF go down. We see VIP um, goes down and we also see transforming growth factor beta one go up. And this is what an NMMP9 also goes up. And these are not all of the biomarkers for SERS, but the biomarkers I've just mentioned all have evidence to do with epilepsy. So, One of the things I'll share is um, MMP9 is often elevated in SERS patients. It stands for matrix metalloproteinase 9. It actually breaks down connective tissue and can affect the blood-brain barrier. And we know that prolonged seizures are actually related to high serum MMP9. We also know that that is involved in the I guess, the dysfunctional synaptic formation in the hippocampus of patients that have temporal lobe Epilepsy. We know that in animal studies, that overexpression of MMP9 actually develops an increased susceptibility to seizures. But where the research is at the moment is more investigating the gene that codes for MMP9. So is it a genetic thing where it's making too much MMP9? um, And that's why there's an issue. But actually, what hasn't been explored yet is what are the environmental causes of elevated MMP9 in the absence of a genetic, um, and I use air quotes, mutation. It's such a simpler word like mutation. Technically, medically, that's not correct. They're usually referred to as a single nucleotide polymorphism um, or a genetic variant, but basically it's where your gene sort of is programmed to either be overactive or underactive on on its function, so MMP9 is one. So elevated MMP9 interestingly other signs and symptoms correlated with that are spider veins, you know accelerated aging, breakdown of connective tissue, so more wrinkly um, receding gums, you know, there's a whole sort of host of symptoms connected to that as well that we see in mold patients. Um, but that's the link there with, um, potentially with epilepsy. Um, another, uh, biomarker is VIP or vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. In SERS patients, if this is affected, it go, it is becomes suppressed. And unfortunately, VIP, even though the name has intestinal in it and it does play a significant role in gut function, it's actually a neurotransmitter that has um, quite a significant role to play in brain inflammation. So anytime you end up with low VIP, it impacts GABA, which is a calming neurotransmitter in the brain and is actually responsible for maintaining the seizure threshold And we know that VIP helps to suppress absence seizures um, and stopping glutamate accumulation in the brain. So, of course, any loss of VIP removes that regulatory and anti-inflammatory effect. Again, it's just a loose thread that I think would be worth exploring if I was in the neurology field, which unfortunately I'm not. Um, Another one that's interesting is VEGF. Now, this has really interesting research around it um, and it's considered to be a potential biomarker for acute um, injury to the hippocampus, which is part of uh, the brain. But VEGF levels have been found to be significantly lower in children who develop epilepsy from fevers. Than in controls, as in healthy children. So you know, does it um, render the brain more vulnerable to a trigger? And in this case, this it's fever um, based. So you can see here, there's not really any consistency with a type of seizure. There's kind of a little sort of nugget here and a little bit of a nugget there. But then when you start to sew all of these things up in connection with SERS, they start to make a bit more sense. Now. So let's talk about C4A and then we'll finish on um, TGF beta 1. But C3 and C4 are called complement proteins, they are part of our immune system and they are inflammatory. And so, you know, an inflammatory cytokines or inflammation in the body in and of itself, by the way, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's like a signaling that happens in the body to recruit other immune cells for healing or detoxification or whatever the case may be. But sometimes when these things are left unchecked or they're too strongly stimulated, they can cause a lot of damage. And we know in mold patients or SERS patients, we see a huge upregulation of C4A. And C4A actually damages capillaries so that affects blood flow to the hands and the feet. We often see things like Raynaud's disease, chill um pins and needles, numbness um, occurring because of that, especially in combination with low VEGF because the blood vessels don't repair. But also the microvasculature of the brain is also affected And what we do know to be true in the literature is levels of C4 actually increased in patients with uncontrolled seizures um, compared to those with controlled seizures. And there's some really interesting animal studies on that as well. But even in humans, we're seeing um, issues there. And, And basically, one of the other elements of C4A that we know is related to the brain is it's associated with what's called excessive synaptic pruning. So if we think of the synapses as a spider web, the connection between all of our beautiful brain cells, pruning of the synapses is basically snipping them and cutting them off from each other, which of course disturbs communication through the brain.
0: Re- an over keen gardener that's just like <laughs> really damaged the situation. Yeah. Edward
1: hands just with All women. the gear, but no idea. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Got it. Yeah.
1: And actually the way I describe it to my patients is let's say you're in a corporate building and a fire breaks out on level two. Like all the fire doors are there to seal off the oxygen and stop the fire from spreading. It's actually a response from the brain to stop the flow, the domino effect of the toxin coming through to the rest of the brain. And, of course, if it's short-term and the original – issues addressed and everything sort of comes back online, that's okay. But in the case where there's chronic stimulation because you live somewhere that has toxic mold where you work in, a, in an office that's water damaged, you can see how over time this would really significantly affect brain function and result in all of the other symptoms, brain symptoms we see um, in SERS patients. And lastly, and the, probably the, the biomarker that has the strongest evidence and connection with seizures is a protein called transforming growth factor beta 1. Now, it's a modulator of astrocyte reactivity. Now, astrocytes are another type of cell in our brain, and they're actually essential for normal brain functioning and also normal brain development. And they respond to brain injury and disease Um, in a way that can really negatively impact the brain. And with TGF beta 1 being upregulated in this particular type of inflammation that mold causes, we can see that um, we see higher amounts of basically brain cell death, We see the blood-brain barrier getting compromised, which, of course, you know, really dismantles that protective barrier um, between the brain and the rest of the world. Um, They're still, I like, really exploring a lot of those cellular mechanisms, but we know that it it's actually the way that it activates astrocytes can induce epileptic seizures and interestingly there is research around medications that block the tgf beta pathway that and that actually helps to prevent epilepsy so this is probably the one that i think is going to be quite promising and is and it also high tgf beta is upregulated in a lot of brain diseases including multiple sclerosis alzheimers stroke. um, We see it also in sort of other types of traumatic brain injuries as well. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of um, physiological connections there with the biomarkers I know to be affected with SIRS and what's reflected in the current literature. And again, it does not mean that Everybody that has seizures, it's induced by mold. Um, But what I am interested in doing is raising awareness because there are absolutely going to be people um, out there in the world, possibly listening to us right now, who have seizures that are either being exacerbated or triggered and induced by a toxic environment. Now, just kind of to, to wrap that all up, in addition to those obvious things, neurotoxic mould chemicals and, of course, the biomarkers that the immune system, you know, will shift and change with due to those that provocation, there's also hormonal changes that affect the brain um, that are not necessarily induced just by toxic mould but certainly are induced by toxic mould that can also contribute or set up the, I guess, the circumstances that make it a lot easier for the brain to lose control over its electrical activity. So Nat, I'd love you to share those with us as well.
0: Yes, I would love to share. I'm just like, I was, I'm tempted to do like a over-dumbed down version of just what you said there for a second for anyone who feels, because you just know so much um, and you did such a good job of breaking some of those things down because they're it's really hard to simplify something that is so complex, like SERS and like um, neurotoxins and what's going on. But for anyone who just needs like a second to just have an oversimplified um, moment, what what we're connecting here is like there's there's water damage um, to some degree what happens from there is that um extra fungus grows so fungi everywhere but more of it grows in a in a, a wet or a humid or a damp place and we can all connect that with you know opening up the car and we've left i don't know a wet towel in there and you're like oh god yeah. um and Ooh. those those fungi those fungus actually produce toxins and that's what my, that that's what these toxins are that Amy's referring to and then there's a way to test your body's response to that internally that indicates that it might be um inflamed or starting to move into this chronic inflammatory response syndrome which is SIRS. so anyone like I, that helps me as well to think about it in that way. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's good to just take a moment to pause and then moving on to what you were sharing on there as far as like the, yeah, hormonal changes, so to speak. So, All of us have heard of cortisol by now. I'm sure you are not tuning into this podcast not having heard of cortisol, Um, and it's often referred to as our quote-unquote stress hormone, which isn't untrue, but um, anyway, seizures basically are related to an inc- like related to increases in cortisol levels in 70 70 se- in 7070 in 77% of the studies plus increased seizure frequency in people with epilepsy is associated with high cortisol levels so it's really important that we acknowledge stress and cortisol as a connection there or a thread The other thing to um, draw a little bit of a connecting dot with from a hormonal perspective is that our sleep hormone, melatonin, has anticonvulsant properties, plus people with epilepsy have melatonin levels that are lower than average average. And administration of melatonin, so giving people the uh, giving people melatonin, actually has been found to attenuate seizures. So, um, to basically help to reduce them or reduce the severity. Um, and then the other final connecting thread there that I think is really interesting is that. Um, vagus nerve stimulator therapy is a treatment for epilepsy. So a reminder that the vagus nerve runs up the sides of the neck and into the brain. And um, in in this therapy, basically um, electrical pulses are sent to the nerve, the vagus nerve, which carries the pulse to the brain. And this helps to prevent or shorten the length of seizures. So in a nutshell, basically having good vagal nerve tone, which is interconnected with um, stress hormones mentioned above amongst many other things is really important. So you can see, I guess, even in just sharing some of that, you can see, you know, why and how, Amy, like you've just drawn so many different threads there and where there are, associations and some direct links in the research for some of the things we've spoken about it's also it's also kind of that situation where you go when all the things are adding up it's worth looking at or considering as a possibility even if there hasn't been a definitive you know double blind randomized placebo controlled trial to prove x equals y it's it's one of these situations where there's enough Evidence gathering in a room that looks suspicious enough to at least consider investigation um, as well. So that's a bit of a side, a side tangent on on my front. Um, Where where should we go next with this?
1: Um, I might just round out what you said by saying um, a water damaged building or exposure to toxic mold will upregulate your nervous system and drive sympathetic nervous system activity. So that's the vagal nerve stuff is interesting from a treatment perspective, but also that activation of your nervous system is just another aspect of how a poisonous environment can stack the cards against you, you know, not in your favour as far as seizures go. And then with SIRS patients and mould, we see issues with alpha MSH, brain inflammation, melatonin production. And and so a lot of SERS patients really, they're fatigued, but they're also not sleeping properly Mm -hmm. Um properly. and and not getting enough sleep usually and therefore not producing enough melatonin. So just across, you know, many mi- micro and macro levels, just there's so many layers to it unfolding. And we know, obviously, there are lots of other harmful effects of a poisoned environment. And not everyone that's exposed to toxic mould will have seizures. Of Obviously, there's going to be other vulnerabilities that set you up for that. Um, but regardless, it's always worth actually exploring whether or not toxic mold exposure either currently or in the past is a factor for you. Now, Nat, I know you've heard me rabbit about mold for about six or seven years now. So I actually I'm going to hand this over to you um, and I'm going to say like obviously if you can see mold in your home, there's a moisture issue. So mold equals a moisture issue. Not every species of mold produces mycotoxins, but many of them that grow in the built environment do. However, I can tell you that what I've seen anyway, in my experience, about 80% of buildings do not have that obvious patch of mold um, or even necessarily a musty smell. So now what other signs could people look for to suggest that maybe there's some water damage that's hiding something a bit more sinister?
0: mm great question and happy to step in my mold queen friend <laughs> um, well, yes, outside of that terrible musty old um, odor mm. also um, peeling paint mm. or bubbling paint um, or another really uh, obvious one is discoloration in the paint so like on the walls or on the ceiling so always like looking up and around and I'm sure like I'm sure we've all seen it somewhere where you look up and you're like oh that looks like someone's like rubbed rubbed a dirty nappy into the ceiling, but just like a light brown tinge or yeah, it just yeah. like looks, Yeah, different same. color to something yeah, yeah. else. <laughs> um so those are some of the key ones that that I often um think for think of, or also like look look down. So like same thing with carpet. Like, mm. does it look like there's got a different um different colored carpet or you can clearly see that there has been some spillage on a carpet um, that they've either tried to cover up or not cover up, and it might have been you. You might have been the person that tried to cover it up, or it might have been someone else. If depending on the, you know, on the situation, but those ones I feel like are one of the most um, obvious ones. If you're a really terrible friend and you want to take your mold affected friend into. A uh, a building, <laughs> then that's another way to tell. <laughs> I don't advise doing that. That's not very kind to the friend. But um, I would be lying if I said I wasn't ready to line Amy up for my <laughs> uh, first home inspection when we were looking to buy a
1: house. <laughs> I didn't, but look, I would I would have ta- taken one for the. I test. was ready.
0: Um, also, <laughs> I, I actually think. Another hint, and maybe Ames, you can you can course correct me on this one if you think mm-hmm. I'm just throwing out left of field. but in like in people who are like I think if you go and you spend time in a in a home or um or a work environment or whatever it might be. And you feel like you're starting to get an increase in difficulty with your breathing or you start to get like sinus um, congestion or like allergy type symptoms. um, That's another another hint. And I think a lot of people play that off as like, oh, there just must be a little bit of dust in here. But where there's dust, there's mold particles and it's not always just quote-unquote oh it's a bit dusty so
1: oh thank you for saying that you know for every gram of dust it harbors up to a million mold spores so, so it's not motivation to dust I don't know what it is <laughs> <laughs> you know what 100% and so if it's dusty then there's definitely spore activity but you're so right like um allergy symptoms feeling itchy sneezy rashy headachey, fatigued brain mm-hmm. foggy there's a lot of red flags that a building is unhealthy um I know um when Nat and I used to work um the one of the girls you could actually set your clock by her sneeze when the air con would come on at 10 a.m like kick up a notch she would sneeze mm-hmm. just clockwork which was just an absolute like red flag for an HVAC system that was desperate for some maintenance
0: yeah.
1: um but look, if you're if you're curious about whether or not mold is a factor for you, there's a few resources I have to point you to. So I have got a free webinar that is covers the nine subtle signs. Your home has a mold problem. Amazing and- webinar, FYI. Oh, thank you. Whether, comes-
0: like, and I actually think, sorry to interject there with such passion, but <laughs> yeah. I actually think whether you are currently affected by this or not, mm. it's. it feels to me like when I listened to that, I was like, this should just be like general knowledge for the general pop- population of like, how do I actually keep myself healthy? Because it's so much easier to steer yourself away from a bad environment than it is to try and like claw your way back once you've already been truly mm. like deeply affected. So, oh. it's just prerequisite learning for life, friends.
1: I think so. And and if you take away nothing from this episode except for that, please let it be that because I can't tell you, you know, how many people I've seen, you know, professionally just deteriorate you know, to a point where recovery is incredibly difficult and protracted simply because they didn't remove themselves from that environment or put themselves in an environment that actually was quite obviously not healthy. Um, So please don't do that to yourself. Um, Second of all, you can also cross-check your symptoms, and we've mentioned some of them like the chronic allergies. If you're always taking antihistamine, your nose is always blocked, you've got a rash that won't go away or you get, you know, headaches a lot. You're a bit fatigued and brain foggy, but there's more like weight issues, gut issues, um, sensitivity to gluten, non-celiac sensitivity. I've got a free ebook that actually goes through all of the symptoms of SERS, but also um, other symptoms of mold exposure, chronic mold exposure. So you can also download that for free. And if you want a professional support um, and my eyes on assessing whether or not this is actually a factor for you, um, if you've looked at, you know, watched the webinar, you've read the book and you're like, I'm still not sure, or I want to chat and I need some help, feel free to just message me the word mold and Nat. Um, kindly (laughs) made sure that you can spell it whichever way you want. So for our Northern Hemisphere friends, if you want to drop the U, that's absolutely fine. Um, Or if you, you know, if you speak the Queen's English, use the U. Either way, I will send you an automated response with a link to book in um, for a chat with me about Um, mould because this is definitely something you want to rule out regardless of health issues. But if you've made it this far, you have clearly got um, a vested interest in something to do with epilepsy or seizures, either for yourself or a loved one. And I think, you know, as practitioners, Nat and I are always looking for the root cause or the root causes of someone's issues, and this is such a big one. Um, whether it is or isn't doesn't really matter to us. What matters to us is that it gets thoroughly explored and either taken off the list as a potential issue Or if it's uncovered that it is a factor, you can obviously address it then.
0: Mm, I love it. And to round out that uh, conversation as well, a reminder that we have done other episodes on mold. And um, some of the ones that you should definitely check out are actually some of our really early episodes together. Mm -hmm. So, episode four, five, six and also 11. So four, five, six and 11. I feel like I'm at bingo four, five, six and 11 (laughs) feeling. I I was about to try and rhyme. (laughs) I'm not going to. Sorry, everybody. Um, So go and check those out because I think it will, it'll help. Yeah. Have some of this stuff solidified. Otherwise definitely check out those resources and start DMing Amy so she can just shortcut the process for you and figure out whether it is or isn't (laughs) part of your story. Mm, Well,
1: thanks for being with us, friends. If you stayed this long, we appreciate you so much. I know it was a bit of a technical one, but certainly I hope it's going to be helpful for you if this is something that's affecting you or someone you love.
0: Amazing.
1: Chat next week, guys. Bye for now.